All right, well, thank you. <laughs> that was fun. Everyone should get to do that. All right, well, today we're going to talk about one of my favorite things, which is worship. And we're going to use Psalm 95 as our scripture today. But first, let's pray. So God, thank you for today. Thank you that you have filled this place with your joy already, that we can walk in your joy. I pray that you would open our minds and open our hearts to worship so that we would be able to worship you more fully in the future. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So what is worship? Worship can mean different things to different people. We can use the word in different ways. Worship is classically defined as a verb that means to show reverence and adoration for a deity or to honor with religious rites. So we could talk today about living our lives from a place of worship or different ways we worship, but I'm going to talk specifically today about worshiping with music corporately as a body. But understand that that doesn't really happen in isolation. It really spills over into different ways we worship and into the way we live our lives from a place of worship. Okay? So, my hope today is that I can put words to something that you've maybe experienced in the past during worship, but you haven't really known how to describe it. Or if you haven't experienced what I'm going to describe today, that it ignites like a hope inside of you, a desire for something new and deeper and more intimate in worship. Worship is something that is intensely personal. Any person in America that's gone to a church in any denomination probably has an opinion on worship. What they like, what they don't like, what they think is good, what they think is bad, what type of instruments they believe should be used, how the congregation should respond, if they should sit or stand or kneel or raise their hands or dance or shout. People have opinions about worship. For me, I really love the worship that we have here at Vineyard Northwest. It feels like home to me. It's the highlight of my week. It's kind of like my week culminates in this peak of worship, and then it sets me off on the new week. I love being here in this room with these people, with these musicians, and just worshiping together as a body. It makes me feel like the most alive of the whole week. But I didn't grow up with that mindset of worship, and I didn't grow up with that style. I grew up actually in a Presbyterian church, and we had organs and choirs and pianos and hymns and different things. And I really didn't understand worship. To me, back then, it honestly felt a little bit like a placeholder. Like, well, we just do this to kind of fill some time during the service. Or we just do this because it's tradition. And we always sing a song after the sermon. Or, well, the choir really likes to have a turn. So they always get to sing during the offering. Or really, sometimes it felt like we added the music in to make the service more enjoyable, more palatable, less boring. I mean, I didn't have a great mindset of worship back then. But as I've grown in learning about worship, I've had a deeper understanding and my intentionality in worship has changed and my heart posture towards worship has changed. Now, music in and of itself is enjoyable, God created music and he created us to enjoy music. And again, we all have our own different perceptions about what constitutes good music. 
But at, at the very base level, we were created to respond to music. And so when we take our affection for God, which can naturally elicit an emotional response from us, and then we combine it with music that also naturally elicits an emotional response from us, and we combine those together, that's worship. And it's powerful, and it's transformational. It's the combination of those two things. Now, we as the Vineyard Church, we have a pretty cool heritage when it comes to worship. Our founder, John Wimber, he was a musician, and he had connection with the Righteous Brothers, if you know that band. And then he had a radical conversion experience and became a believer. And so he came into worship, and he very organically kind of birthed this new worship movement within the vineyard as the as our movement grew and it was this worship it was this authentic heartfelt worship of singing to God see before this worship had been mostly let's sing about God God is great and he kind of changed it to let's sing to God God you are great And it turned worship into this like more intimate, heartfelt experience. This was in the late 70s when this first started. And it's now something that we as a vineyard movement have really contributed to the body of Christ as a whole. And it's kind of spread across different denominations. And now, to us today, I mean, it seems very normal. Like, why wouldn't you sing a song to God? But back then, it was revolutionary. So here's a quote from John Wimber about worship. Worship has a twofold aspect. We lift him up and exalt him, and as a result, are drawn into his presence where he speaks to us. So, his quote perfectly sets us up to dive into Psalm 95. So, if you have your Bibles or your phones, go ahead and turn there, scroll there. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So I've read a vineyard philosophy of worship that was written by Alexander Venter. He actually worked with John Wimber back in the day, and he's a South African vineyard guy. Um, So he wrote this vineyard philosophy of worship using Psalm 95, and I'm going to use that today to kind of jump off of. So worship is a process. It's a process that we go through, and it's a process that God goes through with us. So how does this process start? Well, first of all, we decide to worship. 
We have to make a choice to worship. It's not an absent-minded thing. It's not something that we stumble upon. I mean, sometimes you might, if you like get a worship song stuck in your head and you find yourself singing it, it might happen that way. But then we have to make the conscious choice. We have to attend to it in our minds. We have to say, yes, I want to worship. I want to come before his throne. It's a coming. It's a decision. It's something that we decide to do. We attend to it with our minds, with our hearts, with our bodies. And then we remind ourselves of who God is. Verse three, he is the great God. It's reminding ourselves how big he is, that he holds the earth in his hands, that he made the seas. And then it's aligning our perspective with that. Because that is the true perspective. The true perspective, reality, is that he is good, The reality is that he is great. The reality is that he created the earth. The reality is that he is mighty. And so when we sing these songs, when we come before him, we make a decision to worship, we remind ourselves who he is, it realigns our perspective and we bring ourselves back to center, back to true north. Because really, if we're honest, day by day and hour by hour, our perspectives kind of shift. And the mindset of the world just kind of seeps into our mind And suddenly we're going this way and we're forgetting. So worship coming before him and then reminding ourselves, bringing ourselves back to center. Oh yeah, he is good. Oh, he does love me. It's reminding ourselves of who he is. I talked with Tyler a little bit this week about worship, our worship leader. And he said that honestly, sometimes the first 10 to 15 minutes of worship can feel a lot like getting over ourselves. And that's true. We have to kind of get out of all of the gunk and the things that we were thinking about as we came into the room, and we have to kind of move beyond that. Now, this doesn't have to be a super solemn occasion. If you were here for the first song, that was not a solemn occasion, okay? The coming before his throne, we actually do it with joy and thanksgiving. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. So, we have to actually sing. Okay? This is not just thinking about God. And it's not just talking about God. It's singing about God and to God. Now, I am not the best singer, to put it mildly. <laughs> I would never, ever want to stand up here with a microphone and sing for you all. And you, pro- <laughs> I'm not doing it. <laughs> you wouldn't want me to either. <laughs> But I think part of why worship involves singing is because it's vulnerable. It's a vulnerable act. You know, like thinking thoughts in my mind to God, praying, that's really safe. Even me standing up here talking about God to you guys, that's a fairly safe thing to do. But singing, whoa, not safe at all. We have to kind of take ourselves and put ourselves in a vulnerable place. But also... It's taking our thoughts and it's taking our words and it's adding music to them. It's adding tune, it's adding rhythm, and it's taking the words that maybe mean a lot to us, but when we add the music to them, man, it just explodes and it's so good. But this verse also says, let us. There's power when we come together and worship. When we are together as the body of Christ and we are worshiping together, there's power there. 
Things happen when we worship together. Sometimes God decides to come and a sensation of his presence just kind of goes through the room. And we all feel it and it unites us, it unifies us. Other times he comes and he releases healing or he releases freedom or he releases a certain emotion in us and we all can feel it and tap into it together. But because he's so big and because he's so great, he can also, whilst moving corporately, he can also work inside of each of our individual hearts at the same time. So the first stage of worship, we come before him, we decide to come before him with joy, with thanksgiving, we remind ourselves of who he is, we get our minds back in the true perspective, and so now our hearts start to get activated and get into the process. And the second stage is an act of intimacy and adoration. Verse six, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. You know, if it only said, let us bow down and kneel before him, that might feel kind of cold. When I think of that, I think of a king and a subject and bowing down. And there is not necessarily relationship between those two people. That can be a very cold, almost, um, can't think of the word, obligatory thing where you just have to do it. But then the next verse talks about us being the people of his pasture, that we are his flock. That speaks of relationship. So it's both and, it's reverence and it's intimacy. So our response to his greatness, to his mightiness, to his goodness is to adore him, to revere him, to bow down before him, to surrender our hearts before him, to tell him that we love him. And when we do that, we can experience this almost indescribable sensation of truly being his and likewise of him being ours. We get to experience that. I read this week that it is in this stage of worship that we can truly experience the numinous. And I didn't know what numinous meant. So I had to look it up. But then I loved it. There are three definitions of numinous. One, supernatural. Two, filled with a sense of the presence of divinity. And three, appealing to the higher emotions. When we get to this stage, when we are revering God... We experience the numinous. We experience the supernatural. We experience the presence of God and we experience higher emotions. Now, this can and should look different for different people. And this can and should look different for the same person on different days and different times. We are not robots. It's not like the presence of God comes into the room and we all stand up as one and put our hands up and say, God is good. That's just not how it's going to happen. He's a personal God. We have a personal relationship with him. So it's going to look different and it's going to feel different each time. But we're probably going to have a bodily response. You might find yourself becoming very still or even unable to sing for a time as he just ministers to your heart. You might find yourself dancing And even thinking, man, I don't usually dance. What's going on? You might find yourself lifting your hands or having the desire to lift your hands. In this stage, we really have to partner with him and allow that to work through our bodies. 
Now, with that being said, there are some songs that are just going to get the same emotional response every time. I have a song, the song When You Walk Into the Room. Do you guys know that song? We used to sing it a lot. and um, I'm not going to sing it, so let's sing it. <laughs> you can all just imagine. <laughs> but there's one line in the song that says, When you walk into the room, the dead begin to rise. Well, when I was 12, I had an experience of dying and being brought back to life. So when that, when, like, I can say that to you and be fine. But when I'm in this room and worship is going and the presence of God, I'm experiencing the numinous and that line of the song happens, I am undone. Every time. Because I'm brought back to the perspective of, oh my gosh, he's good. Oh my gosh, he saved me. And so there's, there's just a physical response. There's an emotional response, a mental response. It just, the presence of God affects us. So if we've truly reflected on who God is, we've truly attended in our minds, our response will be to surrender. Our response will be submission, wonder, and awe. This stage is marked by humble reverence and awe of him. Now, you might be wondering, how does the joy and shouting of stage one mix with the humble reverence and awe of stage two? How do those go together? It seems like there's a discrepancy there. But there's really not. So the best way I can describe it is to tell you a little bit about my mom. Okay, my mom's down here. Everyone say, hi, mom. (laughs) So my mom loves me. She loves me unconditionally, and she has told me from the time I was very little that she loves me unconditionally. And I would say when I was a little girl, well, what if I kill someone? (laughs) Will you still love me? And she would say, yes, Sarah, I will still love you. What if I kill a lot of people? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I will still love you. I'll come visit you in jail, (laughs) but we'll have some things to talk through. I was like, okay, she really loves me. I mean, she knows like the best parts of me. She knows the worst parts of me. She's the person I call in the middle of the night when I feel sick. Even now, I call her and I'm like, I don't feel so good. And she talks me through it while Grant snores in the bed. (laughs) She loves me wholeheartedly. However, when I was a little girl... She could stop me with a look. You guys know the look I'm talking about. And there was one day, I was in fourth or fifth grade, I was probably like nine years old, and my brother and I were home alone. And we got into a fight, as only siblings can. And my blood just started to boil. I was like filled with rage. At my brother. And I don't remember what he did. I don't remember what I did. But I remember that feeling of rage. And I just didn't know what to do with it. And I started running down the stairs to get away from my brother. And I started shouting at the top of my lungs every bad word that I knew. Just like a list of them. They didn't even make sense. They didn't connect with each other. Nouns, verbs, whatever. Just shouting them out. And I get down the stairs and I go through the dining room. And I turn the corner into the kitchen. And mom just got home. And she was standing there right by the back door with that look. Because she had heard my whole tirade. And I literally skidded to a stop right in front of her on our tile floor. And just like, oh no. 
And this was pretty out of character for me. Like I was a good kid, right? Yeah, I was a good kid. This was very out of character for goody two shoes, little ballet dancing Sarah. And I had this moment of like holy fear of her, but it wasn't true fear. Like I knew she still would love me. This wasn't as bad as killing people. I knew she would still love me. I knew she would send me to my room. I knew that she would calm down. I knew that I would calm down. I knew she would come to the bottom of the stairs and she would call for me and she would call me her child of the covenant, which is what she would say when I would get into trouble. And then she would tell me, she would reaffirm her love for me and tell me she was disappointed. I knew all these things were going to happen. I had this like holy fear and this respect for my mom. And that's kind of how it is with God. We have this respect for him, but it's underlaid with this utter confidence in his love and his goodness. It has to be connected to relationship. If you have a holy fear of someone or something and it's not undergirded by relationship, it is unhealthy. That is not good. We have to be connected. We have to connect this reverence and this awe with utter confidence in his love and goodness with us. Those go together. So we have this first stage of worship, deciding, coming before him with joy, with thanksgiving, reflecting on who he is. The second stage, adoration, intimacy. We're ready to go into the third stage. But first, I do want to clarify, this is a process, not a formula. Everyone say process. Okay. This means that it's not going to look the same every time. This means that sometimes you're going to come into worship 30 seconds in, you're going to move from stage one to stage two. You're going to be overcome by the presence of God. You're there. You're to intimacy and adoration right away. Other times it may take like 30 minutes of joy and thanksgiving and making a decision to come and getting our minds back in tune. And it's going to look different for different people. This also does not mean that when Tyler makes the set list for every week, the first song has to be shouting and it has to say joy and the second song has to be quiet and it has to say things about bowing down. That's not what it means. It's not about the words or the volume or the type of music that it is. It's about our heart posture and what we go through as we worship. Does that make sense? Awesome. So the third stage, the last part, we hear his voice. And we enter his rest. Let's pick up in the last part of verse 7. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Our minds and our hearts have fully attended and been open to his presence. Our bodies have had a posture of worship. At this point, it's almost hard to not hear his voice. To not hear his heart for us. Now, we don't have to go through this process of worship to hear his voice. Don't hear that. He can speak anytime, anyway. But it gets us into a position of being open and ready to receive. It makes it easier easier for us to hear his voice. So in verse 7, though, it says, if you would hear his voice. Are we listening? Do we take the time to say, God, what are you saying? And then when he does speak to us, are we remembering? Do we count it as true and do we hold on to it? 
You know, these last few, vo- few verses in the psalm honestly kind of threw me at first. It's like, why are these in here? Why are we talking about the Israelites grumbling in the desert when the first part's all about like singing for joy? I, I don't understand why they're connected. But I think they are for a very important reason. See, it, the psalm mentions Meribah and Massa, and that happened in the desert after the Israelites were released from Egypt. See, the Israelites were the, the people of God, and they were enslaved in Egypt for a long time. And Pharaoh ruled over them, and he was a mean, nasty guy, and they weren't treated well. And then God rescued them in this miraculous, over-the-top kind of fashion. Like he sent 10 plagues on Egypt to the point that Pharaoh was like, yeah, get out of here. I don't want you. And Pharaoh even said, take my stuff with you. So they plundered Egypt. They gathered up wealth and they took wealth with them and they left. Pharaoh changes his mind, starts chasing after them with his army. They get to the Red Sea, God parts the Red Sea, the Israelites walk across on dry land, and then at the perfect time, God sends the walls of water crashing back down to wipe out Pharaoh's army. Okay, the Israelites, they had seen, like literally with their eyeballs, they had seen God rescue them. They had seen walls of water, they had seen the locusts come on Egypt. They had had arms full of plunder. They had literally experienced it. It was tangible for them. Then they arrive in the desert and God feeds them. Manna from heaven comes down. Literally bread from heaven just appears every day so that they can eat. But then they come to Meribah and there they are thirsty. And they say to Moses in Exodus 17:3, "Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst?" What? Like do you really think God's going to rescue you in dramatic fashion, feed you from heaven and then let you die of thirst? I like hindsight's 2020, 20, right? Like we can look back at that and we can be like Y'all missed it. Like it was not, it was right in front of you. But they forgot. They forgot that quickly the goodness of God. They forgot that he was their rescuer. They forgot that he was their provider. They just forgot. They got wrapped up in real life. Real life in the desert with all your kids. With your whole family. Like, it's hard for us to take a trip to Cleveland. You know what I mean? Like, you're in the desert with your whole family, with all of your livestock, having to carry all of that plunder. There's sand everywhere. There's dirt. There's dust. But doesn't this happen to all of us? We get rescued. We get saved. God helps us in a dramatic fashion. And then we get preoccupied with the stuff of normal everyday life and we start to think that God's not big enough. Sure, he split the sea. Sure, the sea, the water belongs to him. Sure, he provided manna from heaven, but he's going to let us die of thirst. Of course, he's able to provide water in the desert. And then he does. Back to Exodus 17. Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. 
I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa, testing, and Meribah, quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now we could talk about water coming out of a rock in the middle of the desert with 600,000 Israelite men. That's not even counting all the women, all the children, all the livestock. I mean, that's a huge miracle. But what I want to point out is that this was not even a long time. It's not like this happened 40 years after they were released from Egypt. It's thought that from the Red Sea parting to Meribah, it was about a month. In Exodus chapter 14 is the Red Sea splitting. Chapter 15 is Moses and Miriam's song where all the Israelites are praising God. God, you're so good. You rescued us. You're holy. You're amazing. Chapter 16, God miraculously provides them with manna and quail. Chapter 17, they're convinced they're going to die of thirst. I mean, like, this is quick. It happens quickly. Now, we can laugh. I can laugh because I know I've done similar things. God has done big things in my life. And days later, weeks later, hours later, I'm grumbling. And I'm doubting. And I'm forgetting. I don't want to be a grumbler. I don't want to forget. I want to remember Part of worship is reminding ourselves, keeping his goodness, keeping his rescue of us at the forefront of our thoughts, steeping ourselves in the knowledge of who he is, what he has done, so that when life happens, we remember. I want to be a person who remembers. Worship helps. Listen to the end of Psalm 95. Today, if only you would hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." At first reading, I thought, man, God must have been really angry with them to say, you're not allowed to enter my rest anymore. I'm taking it away. You're not worthy of entering it. But then I started to read the Bible with different inflections. Because just like in text or email, you can't really tell tone when you read the Bible. It's just words on a page. And what if, what if God was actually saying, Man, I am so exasperated with you Israelites. I split the sea. I rescued you. I showed you my goodness. I provided for you. But now, now, because you hardened your hearts, because you have this heart posture of grumbling and doubting and not trusting and never being satisfied, there's no way you could ever possibly enter my rest. His rest is there. It's waiting, but their heart posture is preventing them from experiencing it. I read a commentary that said, God's lament may not be an outburst of anger so much as a sigh of frustration 
As if God is looking down at his harried creatures and saying, what's wrong with these people? They're always worried and bothered and anxiously striving to save themselves. When my provision for them has been in place all along, ready and waiting. From that angle, it is not hard to imagine God throwing up his hands and exclaiming, if they would only enter my rest. He wants to give us his rest. His rest is made available to us. And his rest is restful. It feels good. There's no worry or anxiety. When you're worried about provision, you're not resting. That's not a place of rest. When we're in his rest, we don't worry about provision. When we're in his rest, we have peace and joy and hope and love. We have all the good things that the spirit has to offer us. One of the ways we can enter this rest is through the process of worship. Worship takes us there. We hear his voice and then we can enter into his rest. Sometimes it can feel hard for me at the end of worship to stop worshiping and go to real life. Like pick up my kids from Sunday school. You know, like that's real life. (laughs) It can feel a little hard to like exit the bubble. But we really need to take that state of rest of being in his presence, of trusting, of knowing, of loving. We take that rest and we take it with us into our normal everyday life. And then stage one, the joy and the thanksgiving is easy. We're there. And so then stage two is easy. Yes, God, I love you. Yes, you're good. I bow down before you. I surrender my life to you. And then stage three is easy. We hear his voice. And then we stay in his rest. It's cyclical. We need to choose to stay in a place of worship. You know, this is kind of like the the culmination when we all come together corporately as a body But if we are individually living lives of worship throughout the week, when we come together as a body, man, what is the potential there? We have to live our lives from this place of rest. So we're going to worship in a couple minutes, and I want to encourage you to just be intentional. Be intentional about your thought process. Be intentional about being open to respond to what God is doing specifically with you And in the room as a whole. Maybe even open your eyes and look around every once in a while. And just see, what is God doing? Try something different. Give yourself permission to try something new. So God, thank you that you have given us worship. Thank you that we are allowed to come into your presence. We are allowed to tell you we love you. We have free reign to speak our hearts to you. We thank you for that. We pray that you would fill this room, that you would fill our hearts, and that our worship would please you. Amen. And as we draw the sun.